0: Uh, But this morning we're in week five of uh, our 12-week sermon series. Ken, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm just getting a lot of reverb up here. Thank you. That's better. Um, Week five of our 12-week sermon series, Tough Texts, in which we are tackling the most difficult passages in the Bible. We've considered the allegedly irrelevant text, the supposedly inconsistent text, the perpetually personally problematic passages You can say that five times fast. And uh, last week, Pastor Thad did an excellent job of filling in for me on the topic of unanswered prayer as we transition to our fourth category, a theologically problematic text. And this morning, we're going to stay in that kind of category and examine a passage, maybe the passage that has given Christians, in particular evangelical Protestant Christians, perhaps more headaches than any other in all of Scripture, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And rightfully so, because there is a very real tension that exists between what James is going to tell us here in James chapter 2, and what we find elsewhere in particular in the writings of the Apostle Paul uh, in Scripture. Now, I use that word tension very purposefully. I hope to show you there's no contradiction here. As we affirm in week two of our study, uh, all scripture is God breathed, it's God's word, and God does not make mistakes, and so no contradiction, but certainly some tension. Just consider these two verses side by side for a moment. Romans three twenty eight, Paul says one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James tells us in the passage we're about to read, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I want you to feel the weight of the tension there. I hope you can appreciate that. I've got my work cut out for me this morning to prove to you that those two statements, those two verses, both equally true, inspired, important doctrines that that believers must affirm. Some Christians throughout history have not. The tension was just too much for them, and they felt forced to pick. I'm either on Team James or Team Paul. And so Roman Catholics chose James While Martin Luther, the father of Protestantism, called James an epistle of straw, he claimed James had nothing of the gospel in it, and Luther actually tried to have James removed from his canon of scripture, his German translation of the Bible. But I want to argue this morning that when rightly understood, James and Paul are defending the same gospel using the same language but in different ways to emphasize different calls to action because of their different congregations. All right, you got that? Same gospel, same language, different ways, different calls to action because of different audiences. So would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from James chapter 2? Verses fourteen through twenty-six. I'll read from the ESV, and we'll have it on the on the screen in front. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. By the way, visit the info bar after the service. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled." And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to be open to your word this morning. Would you open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to see, hear, feel, know, understand, apply the truth of your word this morning. We want to submit ourselves under its authority, under your authority. God help us whether we come to this text having heard sermons wrestling through this tension before. We think we've already kind of got this squared away, figured out. Maybe we haven't quite heard James on his own terms and taken him as seriously as we need to this morning. Father, would you help us this morning, again, not just hear but apply to live out uh, your word in our lives to have faith that isn't dead, but is active, working, living, breathing, for our sanctification and growth, and for your glory. We pray, Amen. You may be seated. Now, um, I just say on the front end, I'm not aiming at a verse by verse exposition of James chapter two this morning. We're going to preach through the book of James again years from now, I'm sure. We just did it two, three years ago here at West Hills. So, my goal this morning is simply and specifically to try and resolve this tension between James and Paul, or to use the word of the day to justify to you my claim that James doesn't contradict Paul. So, first, let's um, put this debate in its historical context. In case you weren't with us uh, back in October when I preached a sermon entitled The Five Solas on the 502nd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, that, that Reformation was the history-altering 16th century movement to reform the theological perversions of the medieval Catholic Church. We, we outline there are five core tenets of Protestantism and indeed of biblical orthodoxy when it comes to this all-important doctrine of salvation. How are we saved? How are we saved? And, and Protestantism tells us uh, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, in accordance with Scripture alone. Now, At first glance, James 2 appears to be repudiating that second sola, namely that we are saved by faith alone. And were that the case, then we ought to indeed stand with Martin Luther in condemning James as a heretic. To deny the doctrine of justification by faith alone is to deny the gospel itself. There is no more central theological core truth in all of Scripture than salvation by grace alone through faith alone. You take that away, and the Bible is reduced to just another book, just another good story. Actually, it would be a really bad story because it tells us that no one is capable of salvation on their own merit, and so the rest of the Bible would really just amount to an early heads up that we're all doomed for hell. That is why Paul is adamant that salvation comes through faith alone. Romans 3.28, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And most famously for us... Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And let's not forget Jesus either, even more famously, Jesus, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Whoever believes Believes faith alone. And yet, James just told us that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Verse 24. So, which is it? Which is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? And the answer is yes. It's both. Because it depends on what you mean by justified, by faith, and by works. See, this interpretive tension highlights a problem with our language. John Piper points this out using the example of the word rock. It can refer to a stone, a type of music, something you do in a rocking chair, or inexplicably the highest paid actor in Hollywood. He's, he's talented, but come on. So one word can refer to multiple things. Conversely, you know, and I are... are British soccer player here at the church. We could debate all afternoon whether we're going to play football after the service or soccer until we realize we're talking about the same thing, right? And Piper demonstrates the Greek language wasn't immune from such confusion either. You take the word zealous, for example. It can mean jealousy negatively or it can mean zeal positively. That's a big difference. You know, when James exhorts us to rid yourselves of all zealous... Is he saying, don't be passionate, or is he saying, don't be envious? Very different implications. Similarly, the word here that both James and Paul use, share in common, that is identically translated as justified, o. it's the Greek word, has two very different meanings. According to Strong's Concordance, o can mean to show to be righteous, or it can mean to declare righteous. And at the risk of oversimplifying this morning's sermon and letting myself off the hook too easily, that's, that's a ball game right there. That's, that's your sermon in a nutshell. All of the tension just kind of resolves on this slide right here. Paul uses dekioo in the sense of to declare righteous. James uses it with the connotation of to show, or we might even say to prove righteous, to validate, to verify, to vindicate. I bet Eli Sandhouse $20 that the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl tonight. By 11.30 p.m., because the game will last six hours, I will be justified in having placed that bet, right? Vindicated. I didn't actually bet him, right? You can relax, Baptist, gambling in church. Right? It's just a sermon illustration, But we might say that justification, salvation by faith, necessarily results in justification, confirmation by works. Both James and Paul are right because they mean different things by the word justification, salvation versus confirmation. Similarly, they mean different things by the word faith as well. James defines for us exactly what kind of faith he has in mind here, and I use scare quotes again intentionally. They hadn't been invented in the first century. Koine Greek doesn't have any punctuation. But I'm confident that had they had it, James would be scare quoting every time that he uses the word faith in this passage. Because the faith that he criticizes so harshly isn't really faith at all. That's why he writes in verse 14, what good is it if someone says he has faith? Says being the operative word. James is lambasting nominal faith. Faith in name only. Easy, empty believism. He describes it in verse 19. It's mere intellectual assent to some unapplied theological truth. He says, you believe that God is one. Good for you. Even the demons believe. And they shudder. Faith isn't a matter of taking a doctrinal quiz. Demons pass doctrinal quizzes with flying colors. They know exactly who Jesus is, and they poop their pants. Faith means surrendering to Jesus as Lord. The demons know that Jesus is Lord, but he's not their Lord. Faith means Jesus is your Lord, letting him change you from the inside out. That is faith, real faith life-changing, life-giving, effectual, saving, working faith is a faith that necessarily leads to a change in behavior. Jesus made this clear when he declared in Matthew 7, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Faith is the seed that naturally, necessarily, it always results without exception in fruit. If you're not bearing good fruit, you're not saved. If you are, then you are. It's that simple. Now, word of clarification, our sanctification, our growth in holiness is admittedly a process. It's a long process, a lifelong process, in fact. And so our growth may look something like this. That's an actual image I pulled on the stock market. So just ignore the title there. Um, This is not a financial thing that we should all be going and uh, flipping out right now. But virtually every stock is going to have dips over time, right? Like the stock market, it's all about your trajectory, though, and your performance over the long haul. A new believer doesn't have a long haul yet, and so they've at least still got a trajectory So for instance, I'd rather invest in a younger stock that's worth very little, but that's doubled in value since last year than one with a higher overall valuation that's dropped every month for the past year or two years. What's important at any given moment in our lives isn't necessarily the current valuation of our sanctification stock, if you will, but how it's performing over the last month, the last six months, the last year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, So, James is warning us this morning. How's your stock? How's your growth? Growth might look like that with dips. It does not look like this flatline. That's not growth. Both James and Jesus, and even Paul, are in agreement about this. Listen to how Paul describes true saving faith in his epistle. Paul says in Galatians 5.6, the only thing that counts is faith working through love. It's working faith, faith at work, as evidenced by one's love, as in contrast to dead faith, faith that works. Ephesians 2.10, just after Paul's famous declaration of salvation by grace through faith, not by works, Paul immediately then pivots and assures us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're created by God. We're saved by grace through faith for good works. Conversely, we hear Paul warn in Titus 1:15 and 16, the defiled and the unbelieving profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You can profess whatever you want, we, we, in evangelical circles, make much of our profession of faith. It's important, but it's not everything. Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's going to be lots of nominal Christians at the gates of heaven, name-dropping Jesus. Hey, what's up, Jesus? And he will... Say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because it's not enough to confess with your mouth. Romans 10.9 clearly says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, believe in your heart, you will be saved. Because if you believe in your heart, truly believe, if that's the seed James, Jesus, and Paul all agree it will necessarily affect the way you live it out in your hands and your feet and your actions as well. Paul exhorts us again in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And what does Paul mean by test? Does it take a doctrinal exam, theological quiz? No. Paul clarifies in verses six and seven, unless you indeed fail to meet the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, but that you may do what is right. The test of faith is your deeds. The proof is in the pudding, as they say, or as Jesus might say, examine your fruit. How's your fruit? And whether or not we examine ourselves and our own fruit, our own works, Paul says we can rest assured that God will on the day of judgment 1 Corinthians 3:13 the fire will test what sort of work each one has done because Romans 2:13 it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified it sounds a lot like James to me it sounds a lot like Jesus who said in Matthew 25 When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels are with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people out, one from another, as a shepherd separates out sheep from the goats. And He'll place the sheep on His right, goats on the left. The king will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When? Did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, and the righteous will go away into eternal life. Now, if I was not standing up here directly quoting Jesus himself, if I preach that from a Protestant evangelical pulpit like this one, Without directly quoting Jesus, you would excommunicate me on the spot. Does that sound like grace through faith alone to you? Jesus just tied salvation to works. He does not say a word about faith in that entire passage. Or in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, he says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Not a word about faith. How can Jesus tie our salvation to works without any reference to our faith? Because if you have faith, you will always have works. Always. It's just the way it is. You'll know a tree by its fruit. That's his illustration. He says, I save fruit-bearing trees, fig trees. Let's use popular biblical tree. If you're producing figs, it's a safe assumption that you are, in fact, a fig tree, and therefore you will be saved. But interestingly, and this is why Jesus' tree analogy is so ingenious, even in a limited first century pre-Mendelian understanding of genetics, After August, Jesus did create Gregor Mendel, and so um, he he knew all of this. But Jesus knew that you can duct tape a fig to a thorn bush, and it doesn't make it a fig tree. The seed is what makes a fig tree a fig tree. But that internal change will then necessarily result in an external outcropping. Here's how John MacArthur explains it. Just as a fruit tree has not fulfilled its goal until... It bears fruit, so also faith has not reached its end until it demonstrates itself in a righteous life. Or for those of you who may be more mathematically minded, like myself, there are basically four ways of conceptualizing of the relationship between salvation, faith, and works—the equation, if you will. Number one: faith leads to sal- or sorry, works lead to salvation is the position of the current Pope Francis. When asked a few years back by a crying young boy whether his recently deceased atheist father was in hell, Pope Francis replied, your father did not have the gift of faith, but he had his children baptized and he had a good heart. God also has the heart of a father. Do you think God would abandon his child, your father, a good man, even if he didn't have faith? So Pope Francis's answer to the question is clear. Faith is not necessary. For salvation. At the other end of the spectrum, we have some evangelicals who hold that faith leads to salvation. Works aren't necessarily a part of the equation at all, in any way, shape, form, or fashion. If you pass the doctrinal quiz, your deeds are totally irrelevant. Unfortunately for them, there's James 2, Romans 2, Matthew 5, uh, uh, John 5, Matthew 7, Matthew 25, all the other biblical evidence we've just examined that makes it really clear that God really cares about how we live. And so, official Catholic Church doctrine responds... I inserting works back in, faith plus works leads to salvation. Sorry, Pope Francis, you must have faith in order to be saved, but you've also got to have works. And on Judgment Day, you cross your fingers and you hope that your works were sufficient to supplement your faith, to earn you salvation. Unfortunately for Roman Catholics, there's John 3.16, Romans 3, Galatians 2, Ephesians 2. Oh, by the way, James chapter 2, verse 23 that we read a moment ago, please notice that James himself in this very passage acknowledges that Abraham believed God and that was counted, credited to him as righteousness. Faith alone saves. Even James knows this, which leaves only one possible configuration. The Bible's clear, consistent picture all the way through of the relationship between the three, option number four, faith leads to salvation plus works. Listen, friends, if your good works are needed to supplement any part of your salvation, if your goodness is a necessary ingredient on the left-hand side of the equation, then I, I don't know how you sleep at night. I don't, because the bad news is you're really not that good. Compared to a holy God, a perfect God, a perfect sinless heaven, sinlessness required for entrance into heaven, Paul is justified in calling your best attempts at good deeds worthless. That's offensive for, for those of us who, who would try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You don't have bootstraps. Your best attempts at pleasing God on your own merit are worthless. No one does good, not even one. But the good news, friends, hear the good news this morning is that Jesus Christ does not need your help to save you. He doesn't need your help. He is completely sufficient on his own merit. He found you, not in a place of righteousness. Jesus doesn't look for something worth saving. He justified you. He declared you righteous. He found you in a pile of your own helpless. Sinful filth. But the good news is while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And in so doing, Jesus declared you to be righteous. It is imputed righteousness. Jesus gave you his righteousness. He traded his righteousness for your unrighteousness on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God traded his righteousness for your unrighteousness, paid the debt that you owed God but couldn't afford, and purchased new life for you in his resurrection. That is the good news. And the even better news is all you have to do, all you can do to get it, to get his righteousness imputed to you, counted to you as righteousness, credited to you, paid for your sins, all you can do is trust him. It's faith alone, true faith. Not just belief, but faith. Belief is checking theological boxes. Faith is surrendering your heart, your will, your life to Jesus and trusting him. You might believe the chiefs are going to win tonight. Faith is withdrawing your life savings from your bank account and betting the house on it. See the difference? I believe the Chiefs are going to win tonight. I wouldn't even bet Eli $20 on it. I don't have that much faith. The Chiefs aren't worth that much faith. Jesus is. He's worth betting the house on. And when you have that kind of faith, you can expect your life to change because your life belongs to Jesus now. You've surrendered it to him and he has no intention of leaving you in the same place that he found you, the same filthy state that he found you. Jesus loves you too much for that. He wants to change you. He wants to make you new, new creation. So you can and should expect that true saving faith always results in not just salvation in the afterlife, but in transformation during this earthly life. Not just salvation after life, but transformation during this life. Salvation plus works, that's it. And so John MacArthur can say, James and Paul are not standing face-to-face, confronting each other, but are standing back-to-back, fighting two common enemies. Paul opposes works, righteous legalism, while James opposes easy believism. Both men make clear that they are going. we are going to be judged on the basis of what we have done, for that is the sure indicator of genuine salvation. Thirdly, uh, James and Paul mean different things by the word works. I'll do this one quickly. Paul defines works as Romans 3.28, works of the law. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works of the law, but because of Works of the law, no one will be justified. He repeats it three times for emphasis. Paul has in mind works of the law, circumcision, ritual hand-washing, keeping kosher, the same kinds of works of the law, the Old Testament law that Jesus had in mind when he said so boldly in Matthew 5 that I came to fulfill the law for your sake. He questioned the Pharisees' fasting in Mark 2 their observance of the sabbath in mark 2 he called himself the lord of the sabbath jesus put an end to the old testament kosher laws in mark 7 when he declared all foods clean he celebrated the last legitimate passover with his disciples the night before his crucifixion in mark chapter 14 the old testament law and tradition would never be the same after jesus as hebrews 8:13 tells us a new covenant makes the first one obsolete it's not that the first covenant was bad it was good for a time. For 1,500 years, the Old Testament law served its purpose. I used the analogy in a, pr- a prior sermon. It's like MS DOS, it was groundbreaking in its day. But if you're still running MS DOS today, I've got an upgrade for you, a few <laughs> since then. Jesus says, let me, let me upgrade you. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. A new commandment. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You'll prove that you are my disciples. Vindicate, validate, justify if you have love for one another. And like Jesus, James emphasizes this new covenant, Christian works of love as the confirmation of our salvation. That's clear from the test case he offers us in verses 15 through 17, helping a poor brother or sister in need. If you have faith, you will necessarily do it. Share your coat, share some food. Can't watch someone starve to death and tell them, hope you find some food. I mean, while you eat in front of them. Christians don't do that. Fig trees bear figs, leopards have spots and Christians have hearts of love and service. It's in our spiritual DNA. That's just who we are. And so to recap, James and Paul mean different things by the same word. This is kind of your summary slide. If you don't get anything else, this has all this information, justification. Paul means to declare righteous. James understands it as to show to be righteous. The word faith, Paul using the connotation saving heart transformation, real true faith. James scare quotes it, empty, easy believism, and different things by the word works. Paul has in mind the obsolete Old Testament law. James has in view requisite Christian love. As Joachim Jeremias explained it, characterized it so helpfully, Paul speaks of Christian faith, Trust in Jesus, and Jewish works, obeying the law so as to justify oneself. Whereas James refers to Jewish faith, pure monotheism, even the demons have that, and Christian works, good deeds that flow from salvation. Their emphases are different, but their theologies are the same. Dan Doriani summarizes it this way. Paul and James concur that real faith works, both say genuine disciples keep the whole law, Galatians 5, James 2, both praise the law. James says it is loyal, perfect, and gives liberty. Paul says it is holy, righteous, and good. Both say obedience is what counts, James 2, Romans 2. Both say true faith works in love, Galatians 5, James 2. Both say that we show our faith by what we do, Ephesians 2, James 2. Jesus says the same, by the way, in Matthew 7, we read that. Paul says doers of the law will be justified, James says doers of the word will be blessed, saying the same thing. Even Luther eventually came around and admitted, a believer does not truly believe if works of love do not follow his faith. Or as the other reformer, John Calvin, famously put it, faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Now, All of this leads us to one final question that we need to consider in closing. And in our applying, application of this text, how ought this text to change us? I'll let uh, Doriani again ask and answer the question for us. He says, even if we can show that James does not contradict the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith, we wonder why he chose the language that appears to contradict Paul. Paul. Well, consider, therefore, James's audience. I told you before, different audiences. James was writing for Jews who took pride in their theological knowledge. He tended to think their heritage and knowledge guaranteed them God's favor. James wrote for the kind of person who today might tell a pastor, don't bother me, I'm already a Christian. James hoped to undermine false confidence in an orthodox confession. If Paul wrote to give comfort to those who were afflicted by guilt, then James wrote to afflict those who found false comfort in their assent to orthodox theological ideas. So I ask you this morning, friends, is that quote strike a nerve for anyone else? Could James be addressing this letter to you? To me, I'll speak for myself I feel the weight of James 2 this morning. False comfort in an orthodox confession. MacArthur adds, a remembered experience of giving one's life to Jesus Christ, even with the specific date and time, place, is not in and of itself proof of salvation. The only certain proof is the life lived after such a profession was made. Many will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord, I can give you the exact time, place of my profession of faith. I cried real tears. I really felt something in my heart. I got baptized. Here's my church membership certificate. And he will reply, faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all consider the image, the powerful image that James leaves us with at the end of this passage as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead have you ever attended an open casket funeral or memorial service and seen a lifeless corpse it's pretty jarring, I and mean, I still remember the first time I saw a dead, lifeless body. Is your faith alive? Is it vibrant? Is it growing? Do you live with purpose, remembering the purpose for which you were created, that you were saved for good works, praise God this morning for justification by faith alone that we don't have to be good enough that there's not some imaginary bar that Jesus sets and says jump over this but we also want to feel the weight of this text and we praise God that true faith is never truly alone and that he has created us for a purpose and he's given us these lives that are worth living and worth pursuing. Obedience, holiness, righteousness. Amen. Let's pray.